I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending January 24th. In this episode, during its first few decades, AMD acted like Intel's kid brother, tagging along and mimicking whatever Intel did. Recently, however, the company has established a reputation for independent innovation. This week, we've got an interview with AMD CTO Mark Papermaster, one of the architects of the bold new AMD. Also, a conversation with Ron Black, the CEO of Imagination Technologies, which seems to have its fingers in nearly every emerging technological trend out there. And our editorial director, Balaji Ojo, checks in with the key question for the electronics industry in 2020. Where should everyone spend their money? AMD was among the early wave of semiconductor companies born in the late 60s and early 70s, many founded by former employees of Fairchild Semiconductor. Other companies from that era, National Semiconductor, LSI Logic, Mostech, are gone, as is Fairchild itself. But AMD has been remarkably resilient across the decades. Over the years, AMD has mostly prospered, largely by offering itself as an alternative to Intel. But compared to Intel, AMD's corporate strategies and management never appeared quite as steady. In 2006, AMD bought into the graphics processing segment of the market with the acquisition of ATI. In the summer of 2014, the company reorganized into two business groups. One was computing, the other was graphics. At roughly the same time, AMD hired Lisa Su as CEO. She encouraged the company to be far more ambitious, and just as AMD began delivering on those ambitions, Intel appeared to start stumbling. At the Consumer Electronics Show a couple weeks ago, Intel offered some details about previously announced next-generation products, but was vague about when they'll all hit the market. In contrast, AMD introduced a slate of bold new products, most of them with specific launch dates. They included the Ryzen 4000 mobile CPU, the Threadripper 3990X high-end desktop chip, or HEDT, and the Radeon RX 5600 XT graphics card. Mark Papermaster is AMD's chief technology officer. He's been helping to guide AMD's technological roadmap for years. International correspondent Nitin Dahad caught up with Papermaster shortly after AMD's presentation at CES. Nitin asked him about AMD's new products. Well, it's really an exciting time in the industry because what you're seeing is a confluence of where we're all being, you know, really in overload mode of the kind of data we're being bombarded with every day. Uh, you know, you have IoT devices literally everywhere. You know, it used to be that we had the big change of all being connected with cell phones, but now all the devices around us are smart and they're generating a ton of data. And in industrial applications as well, we put sensors on and and have, are creating, uh, you know, really an inexorable demand for more and more high-performance computing. So that's what we're focused on in AMD. Uh, that trend in the industry has driven us uh, to put a roadmap together of a family of CPUs around our Zen uh, family, a family of GPUs around our Radeon uh, DNA architecture, and we're rolling out extensions of our Navi product line. And it's focused on really keeping 
AMD on or ahead of a Moore's Law pace of doubling performance and, you know, at a given cost point every 18 to 24 months, even while the traditional factors that help Moore's Law uh, with new foundry technology nodes are changing. We don't get all the same benefit we used to with those technology nodes. So that's why it's so exciting for us. It's driving innovation. It's driving us to take new approaches like uh, chiplets, putting uh, different components and different technologies and assembling systems across a, you know, a, a chiplet approach like we did on our on our new second generation server, like you saw, in fact, on the uh, 64 uh, core Threadripper that we just announced this week. Uh, that's what excites uh, the engineers at AMD, uh, how to bring innovation that deliver enhanced experience and computing capabilities for our customers. So uh, your CEO, Lisa, uh, talked about the gains in the processor being both from the seven nanometer process, but also uh, design architecture improvements. Uh, are you able to say anything a little bit about that? Too? Yeah, it, you know, going forward, it is so important to obviously reap the, the benefit of each new technology node. And that gives us a density at each new node. Uh, so you saw in our Ryzen 4000, we were able uh, to you know, pack in eight second generation Zen cores, eight graphics compute units and optimize it and bring it all the way down to a 15 watt uh, ultra thin uh, laptop uh, form factor. Uh, so it is, uh, it is about marrying the architectures, the CPU and GPU architectures uh, with the process technology. Uh, but equally, it's about that whole system optimization. So we work closely with the OEMs, you know, delivering the right form factors. And then, of course, the software stack that can deliver uh, the, uh, the end experience. So is there room for new architectures, do you think, uh, as you go forward? And that's a great uh, question. With this, uh, you know, just huge demand for more computing, uh, what you'll see is uh, no abatement in the need for traditional uh, CPUs and GPUs. You have all of the uh, coding standards and the legacy uh, code that, you know, that will uh, demand, you know, uh, more and more uh, compute capability uh, and emerging applications that can leverage that economy of scale of our x86 CPUs and of, of our GPUs. Yet... Uh, we are seeing uh, workloads that, uh, you know, that can benefit from specialized architectures. And so what we're doing at AMD is making sure that we can easily attach uh, to uh, startups and, and new architectures that are coming out there, for instance, uh, to accelerate uh, AI workloads uh, that work in tandem uh, with traditional computing uh, architectures. And when you say new startups, are you talking about startups using the alternative architectures as well? Or? Sure. We uh, first of all, you know, you uh, uh, you have programmable devices like FPGAs that uh, you know allow people to really experiment and try new approaches and new architectures, uh, and then uh, as those prove out, uh, they're they're often hardened into an uh, application-specific IC, and so uh, we would like to see a robust innovation ecosystem uh, that can create these type of accelerator devices uh, with our CPU and uh, GPU products. And does that mean like x86, ARM, and RISC-V sitting together? Uh, well, you, you have that today. Uh, you know, we look at our uh, security processor uh, that we have across our chips. Uh, we partner with ARM. Uh, we, uh, we leverage ARM Trust Zone. Uh, and we, uh, we have many microcontrollers on our devices. So you actually uh, already have a robust um, mixed uh, architecture approach in, uh, in devices today. So um, I'm going to ask you a question. I probably don't expect an answer, but what do we see more of from AMD this year? 
Well, what you can see is uh, it's very exciting. So we started our rollout uh, last year of our uh, seven nanometer across our portfolio. Uh, we're so excited this year to continue that. Starts with the Ryzen uh, 4000 and uh, extending our Navi product line. Uh, and you'll see us uh, you know, really complete that portfolio uh, top to bottom over the course of 20. You know, and and we're, uh, we're right on track on our next generation. So you, we, we've been very public on on our, uh, our, our Zen roadmap. And we've, we've uh, said that, uh, you know, here we are shipping uh, Zen 2 today and our Zen 3 is right on track. And likewise, on our graphics roadmap, we're, we're uh, incredibly focused on our execution and getting each generation out to the market exactly when we promised it. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Nitin. AMD certainly impressed people with the product it announced this month. Some reviewers went hyperbolic using terms like monstrous, insane, and stupid fast to praise the new processors. Moving forward, EE Times will stay on top of how AMD's competitors, especially Intel, try to respond. Imagination Technologies got an immense boost years ago when it became a key supplier of electronic components for Apple's iPhone. Imagination took a commensurate hit in 2017 when Apple said it was going to wean itself from Imagination's products over the ensuing two years. Well, those two years have elapsed, and then a funny thing happened. Apple came back and renewed the relationship at the beginning of January. The press release lacked details, however. Nitin Dahad caught up with Imagination CEO Ron Black and asked about the resumption of the relationship and how it happened. This was Black's response. We said everything we could say in the press release. Yeah, Siri is always listening. You know that, right? We can't add any color. That second voice you just heard belongs to David Harold, Imagination's VP of Marketing. Since it was clear that Apple had closed that conversational avenue, Nitin shifted gears, asking Black about the rest of Imagination's business. The response was an interesting overview of how many other major technology trends are developing today. I'm particularly excited about the automotive industry and the advanced uh, things that they're doing. We have an outstanding position uh, in automotive, and we're looking to expand that. Um, I think there's a very interesting thing in both driving pixels, but also the up towards the autonomous driving and ADAS functionalities, which is just making the cars safer, better places. And that's the type of thing that we really like to do, right? Technology that benefits humanity makes a difference in people's lives. And the automotive industry uh, is doing that. Now, it had a tough year last year. There's a lot of redundancies announced, but we're quite confident it's going to rebound back and it's going to be a great opportunity for imagination. Besides automotive, um, we're very interested, especially with the A-class GPUs, in looking towards uh, uh, the edge and uh, data centers. The edge in a 5G context, we think that that can change the computing paradigms because you have high bandwidth, low latency every place. Uh, so some of the functionality that you think about doing today only in the data center or only in a mobile device, you can partition. One of those uh, is ray tracing. We have an outstanding position in ray tracing. You know, we've been doing it for a decade or so, but we were early. We were, we were too early. Um, we actually had it on hold a little bit uh, a few years ago, but we've been bringing it back over the last couple of years. We've uh, opened it up for architectural licenses. So any GPU, we're willing to license to anybody. 
Um, I think it's a great thing to take a license because we have an incredible patent portfolio. That's another area I'm investing in heavily is patents or patents, as the, <laughs> the British say. Um, so, so ray tracing is interesting, and, and and it's not just ray tracing for for gaming. It's ray tracing uh, like in automotive. Uh, the automotive vendors are really interested in ray tracing because as you render the cars on the screen, I mean, that's their brand. That's associated with how they look at things. So uh, those are kind of the major vectors. We have a smaller initiative today in RISC-V. We're replacing all of our MIPS and meta cores, the smaller microcontrollers that are in the GPUs. But I'm really interested in this space. Customers have been asking us to look at doing higher-end parts. So that's an area that we're investigating. Yeah, so so we watch that space. I've seen a couple of announcements from you, know, you and a couple of the players, which I've written about last year, mm-hmm. around the RISC-V ecosystem. So. I'm guessing if you're going towards the edge and you know you need to do a lot of that stuff, the, the legacy stuff is that sort of too heavy in terms of the silicon estate and things like that. Or well, I think Risk Five is modern architecture and the ecosystem is just gaining a lot of momentum uh, over the last three or four years. Uh, so I've been looking at it closely for five years. Five years ago, I thought it was a little soon. Today, I think it's. It's, there's just so much momentum behind it, and customers are very interested in looking at different aspects of it, uh, all the way up into very high-end application processors. I, I think it's safe to say that um, you know the, the, the firmware-type processors that were in some of our earlier GPUs were pretty simple, but actually now you know we have automotive-grade products, and the requirements in automotive in areas like you know self-test and some of the security are you know that they're more advanced and you need a bit more processing in there risk five really sort of fits the bill for that yeah one of the things uh, that you're probably going to see the industry talk about a lot more and certainly us is secure heterogeneous computing so um, secure all the way down from the device uh, as a hardware root of trust all the way up to the network to the cloud to the applications and binding applications to right specific devices. So that's a big area of focus for us. And heterogeneous in the sense of CPU, GPU, and then various accelerators, many for AI uh, applications. We have a, a very powerful neural network accelerator that's gaining a lot of traction. And interestingly, um, well, first I thought it was going to be mainly a, a hardware play, but it's the software. The software is incredibly complex. The ecosystems are still developing. And when customers come to us, it's usually because they love the fact that we have an API that transcends the GPUs and the neural network accelerator. So if you have an algorithm that's evolving, you can run some of it on the GPU. If you right, if it's more, you know, not evolving, you can really focus in uh, on the, the neural network accelerator. Get absolutely dominant PPA. So I think what I've heard from you now is like uh, automotive uh, is a big big play yeah. for you. Um, one doesn't normally associate you know, sort of the, 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 the tra- traditional graphics sort of pedigree that you've come from and automotive, but now I think it's becoming clear. But you, you know what a, a phone and a car have as a similarity? It, it's, a, it's about heat. You know, in a mobile phone, you don't want something in your burning through your pocket. In the car, you can't have thermal hotspots. You can't have you know, a risk of failure caused by heat. You can't have a risk of fire caused by heat. So actually, a car manufacturer really is very interested in a lot of the same things that have made us so successful in mobile. I would say that most of the cars are moving away from the 
you know, the clusters with the normal dials and they're moving towards screens. And you look at some of the advanced cars, they have screens every place, right? Consoles, clusters, right? Just the entire car. Um, and so you, you are driving a lot of pixels in the cars. And then the functionality, of course, gets used for um, all the way up through autonomous driving type functionality. I saw this is not a, a niche thing at all. You know, we have... Um, the top three cars uh, selling today use our technology. I saw an amazing display yesterday, uh, well, demo, three screens on the car and uh, pretty high performance graphics, and that was being driven by one system, one module. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Right. So, so we have this, this thing called Hyperlane in the A series, which yes. basically lets you drive multiple displays. It treats your GPU as if it's multiple GPUs, up to eight, in fact which is, is basically us saying to car manufacturers, how many screens do you need? And they go, four. And we are okay, we better double that. So, you know, we have that ability to, to drive multiple displays. Um, and I, I think that's going to actually get, you know, more and more prevalent in the car. You know, so, some of the manufacturers we're talking to, you know, they, they think they're going to put maybe 400% more electronics into their cars over the next few years. And quite, it's a massive growth opportunity. I quite like the Hyperlane. When I was writing that article, I quite like the Hyperlane stuff. Yeah. It's cool, right? Um, yeah. It's sort of like a, the parallel processing gone crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the heart of that isn't the ability to, to you know, have multiple workloads. It's the ability to guarantee a quality of service. So in the car, there are certain things that always have to work. So your speedo, you know, if that isn't telling you the correct speed, we, you, you know, you have a serious problem. So you need to guarantee that workload will always be fulfilled. Um, but then something else maybe is a lower priority and, you know, can once in a while drop its frame rate or whatever else if the demands are, are, are different in the system. And our ability to, to guarantee and to, 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 to partition that um, is really what Hyperlines is all about. Coming to, um, I mean, automotive is a big thing, but your connectivity is also a big thing. And, I mean, you touched on the, the opportunity in 5G with the edge processing and, yeah, maybe even ray tracing at the edge, I guess. Um, so tell me a little bit about the, the vision for connectivity as well. This yeah, coming, coming so um, we changed the strategy when I joined the company. Uh, they had previously wanted to divest the Insigma yes. uh, product line. Um, uh, I didn't think that was the right idea. There's a lot of uh, premier accounts that are interested in it. And connected microcontrollers are now uh, all in vogue. And, you know, the, the, uh, clearly we're focused on a very specific set of applications. That's mostly around um, power efficient Wi-Fi and, and Bluetooth low energy. Um, we're not trying to do kind of mobile device things. It's really about the broader market and the IoT connectivity. We've narrowed the, the focus of the team and the, the customers are just responding in incredibly well. Uh, there's lots of innovation, people looking at us. And that's probably the biggest theme about Imagination. Uh, I've known the company for many, many years, um, but I didn't really appreciate how innovative it is. And there's so much innovation. We just created uh, IMG Labs. So it's a, a labs function whose focus, well, today a lot of it is on ray tracing and extensions of ray tracing. But there's a security thrust, there's uh, the, the heterogeneous computing thrust, we're really looking to hire all of these big brain PhD types to complement all of the, the staff that we have. So yeah, it's about innovation. 
Okay. And I would say in many ways, which is nice about it, it's fun and socially responsible innovation. Because, uh, you know, the product sets that we have, think gaming, it's fun, right? But then you can use the same GPUs to make the cars smarter so that, you know, they avoid collisions. So it's, it's socially responsible. That combination is truly unique. In terms of business, is it still very much sort of third, third, third US, Europe, Asia? Or uh, are you sort of like steering towards Asia now because of well, a lot Asia of what's actually happening? actually a smaller part. It's the US is still the largest, then yeah. Europe, then Asia. Um, China in general is a very uh, interesting area for everybody just because of the investment that they're putting into it. Uh, and when you're building all these fabs and all sorts of semiconductor uh, companies that are popping up, you need IP. And uh, most of the time, things like GPUs are just so hard, right? You know, we have upwards of a thousand people working on these things. It, it just doesn't make sense for every company to do it. It makes sense for companies to license it. So we see China as a, a very big area. Um, we're investing heavily in China to, to grow both in an R&D standpoint and commercial customer support uh, across all of the, the product lines. Have you? I, think, I know Arm and Sci-Fi, they've both set up different trading um, entities now in China. Have you done that? or is We've always just had uh, a China headquarters okay. right there. So it, it's not a separate entity. Um, I don't really think that that's the appropriate way to set it up. Uh, in fact, several customers have told us they prefer it not to be that way because you can't, you don't want to have two independent companies trying to accomplish the same thing. You really want to bring the full bulk of the company. We are very independent by management style. We push decision making down. There's more autonomous. We agree on the objectives and then everybody executes uh, ruthlessly uh, in that direction. So there's a lot of autonomy in the regions, but okay. but we really put the whole uh, company behind it. Good. Okay, lastly, um, new decade. You know, everybody's made lots of predictions. Uh, what's your sort of vision of you know, sort of the next, this coming decade, and, and you can maybe relate it back to imagination if you like as well. But yeah. So, uh, you know, I hate the kind of vision type of statements. Um, I, I've always <laughs> found that CEOs that pontificate about uh, vision or get their faces on magazines, you should probably short those companies because <laughs> they are spending too much time. Um, our focus is more on ruthless execution around areas where we have demonstrable value to customers. So it's a lot of customer focus, listening to the customers, all right, and then just ruthlessly executing. And I think we're proving that we're doing that. Um, so that's that's really exciting. I think clearly as um, uh, Denard scaling and Moore's law falls off, there's going to be a change. Uh, you know, uh, five nanometers uh, ASICs will cost a half a billion dollars. There's not a lot of companies can do that. So I think chiplets right, um, is the way to go. I've been working in chiplets in one way or form or another for six years when I believed that it was the time to go. Um, we have internal designs that we're undertaking now in a chiplet context. So I think that's going to be a, a major trend. You know, the other part that I think is super important, um, I'm not ready to announce anything yet, but you're going to see us do a lot more in software. It's a very natural thing when to think about our customers are semiconductor companies, but a lot of times they ask us to work with them, say in the automotive space, to help the car manufacturers tailor their ECUs to leverage our 
GPUs. So that's a very natural extension, is to offer tools and right technical support to the customer's customers, and that naturally evolves into software businesses. Interesting. Yes, I've heard this quite a lot. Um, chiplets, I think that's a very sort of appropriate. I just interviewed another CTO yesterday. He's talking about the um, sort of heterogeneous architectures we're going to see a lot more of, especially for the both the data center as well as the age. Absolutely. Right. We, we see that across the board. Well, Ron, thank you very much. You just heard Ron Black say that Imagination is going to replace all of its MIPS IP with RISC-V cores. What does that mean exactly? Recall that Imagination Technologies acquired MIPS in 2013. Imagination's big ambition then was to become an IP powerhouse similar to ARM, having both graphics and CPU cores under one roof. But that dream never came true, and only four years after acquiring MIPS, Imagination turned around and sold it to Tallwood Venture Capital. In 2018, Wave Computing bought MIPS from Tallwood with a plan for MIPS to go open source. Wave itself went under last fall. Black was referring to MIPS cores used as firmware processors and power VR GPU designs. So Imagination will be replacing those with RISC-V cores developed by Imagination in-house. Earlier in the podcast, we mentioned a handful of the once-mighty semiconductor companies that disappeared over the years. Black's comment to Nitin means that another famous name in semiconductors, MIPS Technologies, is about to join those others on the wayside. Earlier this week, our colleague Balaji Ojo was named publisher and editor-in-chief of AspenCore. AspenCore is the global publishing company that owns EE Times. Bola is a veteran journalist who has covered the electronics industry for so long, he won't tell us precisely how long it's been. Every once in a while, he comes and visits us here at our luxurious studios at EE Time Central, and every time he visits, he's got some big ideas to unload. Here we are with international editor Junko Yoshida. Bola, what's on your mind? Well, today, Junko, first I like to kind of... uh you know, celebrate Aspen Core. I think probably that's the first thing on my mind. Uh, you were at CES with Brian and with David Benjamin and Nitin Dahad and a whole host of team from Aspen Core. We were probably the, one of the largest uh, technology media team at that event. So uh, kudos to the team. You guys really, you know, you, you, you rock. You, you did a great and a fantastic job out there. Now, but in the spirit of what have you done for me today, I can tell you that what's on my mind next, <laughs> what's on my mind next as your co-conspirator editor-in-chief is where I'm sending my reporters next. So Junko, you are off uh, to Barcelona to attend the Mobile World Congress. Uh, Brian is going to be holding forth uh, back home in the west coast of the U.S., uh, Nitin Dahad is going to be at the Embedded World Congress with Sally Ward Foxton, uh, Maurizio, uh, the Paolo Emilio, our famous Italian uh, doctor engineer, is also going to be at the mobile, at the um, Embedded World event uh, in Germany. So we are finding out across the globe, and the reason we're finding out across the globe is that we need to know what's happening. We need to represent our readers, and we need to tell them all about the new things that's going on in the world of technology. Now, in order for us to do that, though, we should go back in time, all right? Brian, got a question for you. 
how many decades now can you count that semiconductors, if you can just kind of approximate the timing when the semiconductor industry could be said to have come alive? How many decades now? Now, my initial answer was was six decades, going back to the early 70s with AMD and Intel. But I already, you've already told me that I'm wrong about yes. that. And the person who corrected me, Malcolm Payne, <laughs> uh, the CEO of uh, Future Horizons, uh, which is a research firm based in the UK. So I was in London last week attending that event. And Malcolm, uh, he's not in his 80s yet, uh, but he has seen several decades of this industry. And he's somebody that's worth listening to. So one of the questions that uh, he asked at that event had to do with what is driving the semiconductor industry today. So that's part of what's on my mind. And rather than I give you his mm -hmm. answer, I'd like to ask Junko. Junko, what do you think is driving the semiconductor market today? You know, I think it's new devices and new applications that are enabled by new devices. You know, like I was thinking, like Brian said, the, you know, five, six decades ago, we didn't even have a smartphone. Think about that. Mm. You know, all the electronics go into that the little devices. You know, we didn't even think that PC was going to be that big 60 years ago, right? right. So I think those are the new generation of devices and the, the application those devices enable. Apps. Apps, apps, apps. Apps are the ones driving the semiconductor market today. You nailed it, Junko. Of course, I expected you to do that. You nailed mm. it. And the reason why it's different today, so this is not your old market from the, from the 1970s or the 80s driven by the PCs or smartphones. It's the apps. And the reason why, I mean, so Malcolm's conclusion was that the, the semiconductor market is more and more driven by the global economy nowadays. And the reason for that are the apps. One, those apps are the ones that have now caught across all segments of the economy. On your app, you can book a flight, you can buy insurance, you can buy a car, you can have Amazon ship you anything, anywhere that you want. Um, there's a lot more that we do on, our, on, on these apps. They've basically caught a line right through the economy. So now, the question for me, when you said, you know, what's on your mind? Data, that's what's on my mind, because they are generated by all of these apps. And the problem from that, there are humongous problems arising from the usage of data. One of the things that Malcolm said, Malcolm Penn said at this event, he said, and, and I thought that was kind of interesting, and uh, it kind of, you know, sets the tone for what we're going to have to deal with as an industry in future. He said, and I'm quoting him, he said, it is unrealistic to expect data to be perfect. If data is not perfect, We've got a problem on our hands. So what is the reason? Why is data not perfect? And what happens when data isn't perfect? Should, are we being realistic in looking for perfect data? Junko, you write about automotives all the time. Well, what, do you, what do you mean? What do you mean by data not being perfect? You mean data not being perfectly captured or data has a lot of noise? Or what do you all, mean by All that? of that. It's not perfectly captured. So even the sensors, you write about auto autonomous vehicles all the time. The, the sensors, what kind of data are they getting? And it's, is it being properly interpreted? Uh, who's processing it? How much of it can any device process at any point in time? How do you use it? And how do you use it right. across the economy? How do you use it at home? How do you use it in engineering? How do you use it in banking? How do you use it in finance? How do you use it at all? If it is not perfect, if you cannot be sure 
that the data you've collected it can be relied upon. Do we know if it can be relied upon? It's the old garbage in, garbage out conundrum. Uh, that's been around for a long, long time. And just by virtue of the fact that we're relying on even more data and collecting more data, the danger of having garbage in is and or garbage out, which either way, uh, that's uh, I, I imagine that compounds the problem, right? Yeah. But we also depend on the data. So here's the problem. So let's suppose that even that let's suppose that from the collection point, the data is clean. So you put it in storage mm -hmm. and then somebody decides to go in and tamper with the data. Mm -hmm. That's a bigger problem. Right, Junko? Yeah, no, exactly. I think you bring an interesting point here. One is that um, how do we protect data, but also how do we, I think you mentioned interpret, but, um, you know, annotation data, it's, it's been known in the world of AI, it's very difficult, right? You annotate data. Somebody has to look at each um, data perceived by sensors and say, oh, this is a man, this is, you know, this is, this is relevant, this is not relevant. You know, somebody, some human have to go in to um, make that decision. And if that decision is not perfect, again, data is not perfect. But one of the things that I was talking about uh, with Brian is that the, when Brian and I were at CES, I was totally amazed that what a big presence Amazon Web Service had. You know, AWS was everywhere. Amazon had its own huge booth, but AWS also had its huge booth in automotive um, segment that was in uh, North Hall, right? It's uh, right in the middle. I mean, it goes to show what Walla was saying. Data has become the currency of the business, and whoever hosts that data on the web has enormous power now. Everything that we do, everything engineers do now, of course, hardware remains important. But I believe that the core of today's economy is how much data can the hardware capture and how will it be used? So... Just leaving the issue of data aside for now, this is going to be a beautiful year as far as as far as semiconductor growth is concerned. Unit shipments are going to be up. Revenue is also projected to go up. Now, there are folks that are saying 9%. Um, Malcolm Penn is saying 10% minimum. And he's saying between it could be as high as 15 to 20%. Wow. That's a good year ahead. Where should your money be if you are in the semiconductor market? Are you supposed to focus on memory? By the way, average pricing going up. Memory is back. And when memory is back, semiconductor will get a good year. I'm certain of that. But where is the memory going? Going back again into data. This is our life today. Well, I think that's uh, where do you put your money? Uh, you've got to spread your money. I mean, you've got to put because you've you got to put the technology where it's being used, and it's being used literally everywhere. Um, it, it's most a lot of it is the smartphones, but you still need data collection points. You need data transmission points. You need all sorts of infrastructure to make sure that the data that's running the economy, or at least as there's the underpinning of the economy, um, is able to be collected and moved and processed. So 
you've got a lot of different points all along that chain. So I, when you say memory explodes, wonderful. But I think RF front ends and processing, the whole shebang should probably do well. It's it's on an upward trajectory. If it's this year, hallelujah. But it's probably good for the next few years too, I would imagine. Personally, my money is on power, energy. Yeah. Because that's what's bankrolling. That's, what's, that's, the, that's the connecting wire for everything that you've talked about. Now, but if I'm going to put my money on power, you know where I'm going to put it? In developing economies. They don't have enough of it. Mm. It's like the old story, okay? A man lands in a place where they don't they don't wear shoes. And he's like, please, he calls headquarters and says, send me all the shoes you can. We, okay, we need shoes here. In developing economies, <laughs> that's where power is needed the most. In the West... They already know how to generate power. So what is the argument? What's the discussion? What's the controversy in the West? In Germany, where I am today, the controversy is what type of power? Well, okay. I'm going to bring my daughter in for a quick story. We were in Africa in December, and uh, somebody said to her, well, everybody in Africa wants to move to the West. They want to move to Europe and America because they think the streets are paved with gold. And this kid said to me, why won't they want to move? If you're in a place where the streets are not even paved at all, you just want a paved road. Forget about it being paved with gold. You just want paved roads. Let's start with <laughs> paved roads, okay? Yeah. Now, it's the same thing. If I have money to invest in power, which is going to drive data, which is, which is the, the reason why we're developing so much more of silicon and hardware in electronics, I would want to put that money in the developing economies because that's where they need that power to run the next set of electronics in this industry. That's what on my mind is a happy mind this week, by the way, Junko. Yeah. Nothing to complain about. We're looking at, uh, you know, some good growth ahead. Yeah. I've got my editors spread all over the world. All right. Covering all of these. We've got a great story at Aspen Call. Watch this space, Junko. Watch this space. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, our weekly celebration of the anniversaries of great moments in electronics history. Here's the first time we've had a pair of related anniversaries. On January 22nd in 1984, a little computer company with a frivolous name bought a commercial spot during the Super Bowl. In the ad, Apple announced it would introduce its Macintosh personal computer in two days. The voiceover said the introduction would ensure that the year 1984 would not be like the novel 1984. The bleak images of resigned conformity to authoritarian control were instantly interpreted the way Apple wanted them to be, as a reference to the leading personal computer maker, IBM. Apple immediately established the anti-authoritarian credit has maintained to this day. The ad went a very long way to help the company win the loyalty of people who work in the arts, a small but well-defined community that Apple deliberately catered to. The ad was immediately recognized for what it would turn out to be, one of the most famous ads in history. It aired on national TV just once. Now, a 30-second spot during that Super Bowl sold for $368,000, according to one source. A 30-second ad in this year's Super Bowl, by the way, will go for $5 million. And 
anybody who remembered who played in that Super Bowl in 84? I'm giving you a few seconds here. Yeah, I see only a few of you in the studio audience are raising your hands. So who was it? Yeah, that's right. The Oakland Raiders and the defending Super Bowl champions, the Washington Redskins. The Raiders won. The director of the ad was a fellow named Ridley Scott. You might have heard of him. He's still making successful movies. The paired anniversary with the anniversary of that ad? The actual introduction of the Macintosh computer two days later on January 24th. That was the amazingly brief startup ping from the first Mac, which came in a beige cabinet that measured roughly 14 by 10 by 11 inches. It was built around a 7.3 megahertz Motorola 68000, and it came with a 128K RAM. It wasn't the first PC built to showcase a graphical user interface, but it was the first successful one, or relatively successful. It was priced at about $2,500, which made it far more expensive than many other machines, five times more expensive than a Radio Shack TRS model. It also didn't have a lot of software. Subsequently, Apple tried more unconventional marketing campaigns, but it kept fumbling. Its missteps included an ill-advised follow-up to the 1984 commercial, referred to as the Lemmings ad, which most potential customers found insulting. It sold well into the education and publishing markets, however, and though those were not the biggest markets for PCs to target, in terms of paving the way for the ongoing cult of Mac, the Macintosh was an unqualified success. Well, that's your weekly briefing for the week ending January 24th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com. You can find a new episode every Friday on our website or through any of the most popular places for podcasts. I'm Brian Santo. We'll see you next week.